I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. say earlier today's reading is from the book of Ruth and I've always wondered how in the world this text got its name because this story is every bit as much about Naomi Hmm. as it is Ruth Naomi an older woman and Ruth a younger woman God encourages and blesses intergenerational friendships Hmm. let me say that again God encourages and blesses intergenerational friendships We aren't designed by God for separation, whether by race, religion, money, gender, or as the bond between Ruth and Naomi makes clear, age. So listen to this story with the ear of your hearts. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, which was a place where Gentiles lived. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, meaning pleasant in Hebrew. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. 
Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, meaning women who weren't Jewish, one named Orpah, the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malin, excuse me, um, yeah, after they had, um, who, where'd I go? I dropped it, oh, sorry. Um, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons, and they married Moabite women, right, women who weren't Jewish, one named Orpah, the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malin and Killian also died. So here's Ruth left, no sons and no husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to go back to Bethlehem. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. And may the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. And they said to her, no, we're going to go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still some hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No. No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this they wept aloud again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law, she's going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this, this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking right now of a young man who left college about 10 years ago. He went into consulting work on the East Coast. He spent a bit of his time on Wall Street and then spent some time on the West learning how companies work and such. Three or four years ago, he and a couple of others set out to start their own company. It was tough at first, but soon it became this quick success. He, he had a chance to, 
to sell it to his original employer, but it, it meant too much to him, and so he wouldn't sell because, after all, the company had become his life, his identity, his pride and joy. And then this past January, it all went wrong. The company slid into bankruptcy. Like a sandcastle being engulfed by an incoming tide, the young man saw his dream disappear and his security and his prestige and his self-esteem just melt away with it. Four months later, his mother and sister have yet to find a way even to gently refer to the subject with him. His life is shrouded in silence and kind of dominated by the F word we don't say in this fast-paced DC metro world, failure. This area are kind of people, right? We celebrate the great feat of entrepreneurship that lies at the heart of westernized culture. You don't move to this area. Take a job in this area unless you have the means and resume to do so. <laughs> Ending up here and staying here is the result of cramming the suitcase of your life full of experiences and journeys and conversations and projects that get you here so that you never have to utter the F word, so that you never have to feel the weight, the aftermath of failure in the pit of your stomach. But lurking behind the facade of success, the privilege of building a life or thriving here is, in, well, in the most well-read zip code of America, right here, surrounded by some of the best school systems, the brightest in military intelligence, a cost of living that requires one to make at least $26 an hour to afford a two-bedroom apartment. Hiding behind all of that is the small, shadowy voice of privilege within ourselves. But what if I fail? Of course, we have sophisticated tactics, right, for calling failure something else. We call it broadening our experience. We call it learning the curve. We call it that blind alley. <laughs> we mutter things like, if it doesn't kill you, it'll only make you better, it'll only make you stronger. We, we quote Kipling and say, if, you, if you're met with, with triumph and disaster and treat these two imposters just the same, even though we know that's total nonsense, and triumph and disaster are not imposters at all, they're, they're in fact as real as anything we can imagine. And the terror of failure of not meeting what is expected of us, not making something of ourselves that we can point to later, show our parents with pride, that we can recount on a long list of things we did in our obituary. <laughs> the terror of failure is, in, of its, is in, in and of itself a sign of privilege. It is the luxury of trying to avoid the failure lurking behind the next bend. Except we seem to live by a different rule. We seem to live by Oscar Wilde's idea that there's only one thing worse than not getting what we want, and that's getting it. Here in DC Metro America, we have the privilege of complaining about what we wanted all along. We fear the F word, we feel, fear failure, but success sometimes feels like more than we bargained for. We went to college we wanted. We went, we, we went to the college we wanted to get the job we wanted, to buy the house that we wanted. 
in the area we wanted, to raise the family that we wanted, to send them to the college that we want them to go to. And as the cycle continues, our privilege sets us up to complain about the traffic and complain about the metro and complain about the long days and the long hours and complain about the lack of hours we have to spend with our family on the weekend and complain about that the gyms don't open early enough for our schedules and complain that our coffee doesn't stay warm enough in our, in our container for the entire commute and that the church isn't convenient enough for this life that I had planned for myself and so Sunday mornings is my time. Did you know that the fear of failure, the fear of not making it, the fear of suffering, the fear of losing it all, and yet also complaining about the struggle to keep it all, in and of itself is a sign of privilege. Anyone who has ever struggled to put food on a table or pay the rent on time knows that they don't get the luxury of fearing failure. Failure and suffering is just a part of life. The book of Ruth begins with failure, not the DC Metro F-word kind of failure, not the privilege of holding the F-word at a distance from ourselves, the kind of failure by the westernized standards that is just a way of life for certain people. This story begins with dislocation and death to escape famine in Bethlehem, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons flee to Moab the land of Israel's bitter enemies. And death just seems just ever-present. Elimelech and his two sons die, leaving behind three widows. Being a widow in and of itself means to face peril. For without a husband or sons, there is no support, and yet they are, and they are always in danger. We meet Naomi. Elimelech's widowed wife, whose name does mean pleasant in the Hebrew, Naomi perceives herself to be utterly alone and without a future. And in herself, she gathers up for us all of the human experience of despair. All in one person, she represents human humanity's despair. Ruth, Naomi's Moab daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law from Moab, after whom this book is named, makes an improbable companion for Naomi. An unlikely character to have a biblical book named after her. She is a foreigner, a woman, a widow, and perhaps of most importance, she is an enemy of the state. The book repeatedly reminds readers of this Ruth's enemy status by referring over and over again, and every time you hear this, think enemy, every time it's said that Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, just hear enemy, enemy of Israel. The fact that the book of Ruth exists in and of itself is a biblical scandal. <laughs> I, 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 imagine, I just want to know what it was like to be in the room at the council, <laughs> at the council that decided this was going to be canonized. I, I, I would love to have been in the room. But to understand this scandal, you have to know what comes before it. Before the book of Ruth lies the books and times of Ezra and Nehemiah. Do those words sound somewhat like you've heard them before, those books of the Bible? This is during the time of restoration in Jerusalem, hoping to ensure that the holy city would not be destroyed again, Ezra and Nehemiah tried to lead Israel in a particular direction for a season of Israel's history. They try to lead Israel in a purifying 
in order that they might cement some kind of ethnic identity for Israel. Because they fear that all of these foreigner wives and children coming in is the downfall of Israel. They fear that the destruction of Jerusalem was really just about that. Just as Naomi and her being represents for us all of the human experience of despair, Ruth, a foreign wife, and a foreign woman entering into a land where she is considered an enemy and less than human, exists to illuminate God's fierce inclusivity for us in the Bible. If she could represent the inclusive nature of God, it would be Ruth. (laughs) And also the reversal of the expectation of Israel to be a very particular type of people, which ends up saving the nation from itself eventually. For ethnic purity, as we know, is not what God has ever demanded, (laughs) has ever desired for God's people, and yet God's people still, they went down that path, and if they've gone down that path, we know they did it again, right? German Nazis, and they can do it again, too. In today's scripture, when Naomi, who left her home of Judah long before, while Israel, God's chosen people, were experiencing famine, now has heard that God has given food to the people of Judah and intends to travel home to Bethlehem, her hometown, urging her daughters-in-law to stay where they are because a life of whatever, a life of success, if they even know what success means or have ever experienced it, would be more possible in Moab for them any day than it would be in Jerusalem. For Bethlehem is still not an accepting and safe place for foreign women. Naomi says, our situation is hopeless. Go back to your own people in Moab. One daughter-in-law heads home and the other, Ruth, clings to Naomi and says, don't press me to leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. It's this heartbreaking scene in which Ruth, in the face of poverty and possible death, says that for her, there's something that means more to her than self-securing, self-preservation, the desire to keep the F word at a distance. There's something that means more to her than that. That something is loyalty and love in showing such steadfast love against all expectations. She shows us the face of God in a way we might never have known or seen it had she been a woman who was lucky and successful. The story of Ruth reminds me of another story in Scripture. It's the story in John's Gospel. Jesus is finding that a lot of people who hung around him early on are turning away from him now. He looks at his right-hand man, Peter, and says, so are you going to go away too? It's as if the whole world hinges on this question. Maybe the whole future of Christianity rested on that question. Is it over then? Will we fail? Are you going to turn away from me too? Jesus asks. And like Ruth, Peter says, there's something more important than my self-securing, my preservation, my popularity, these circumstances of my possible and impending death, and that's love, and that's loyalty. He says, to whom can I go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. It's almost like he's saying, Jesus, even if, if you failed, your failure is more important than anyone else's success. 
again, Peter shows us the face of God because God sticks with us when no one else does, right? And even when it looks like there's nothing in us worth sticking with. The story of Ruth and the story from John's gospel are both stories of failure. Around about 150 years ago in Western societies, a belief in hell started to go out of fashion. It's hard to exaggerate um, the importance of this gradual cultural change. While a belief in hell went out of style for westernized societies, it remained perfectly intact for people around the world who knew what hell looked like. When people believe in a final judgment and in everlasting heaven and eternal hell, there's only one judgment that matters, and that's God's judgment, and only one failure that counts, and that's the failure to enter heaven. But when you gradually take hell out of the picture, all sorts of judgments become sought after and relevant, and correspondingly, there become a thousand ways to fail. Therefore, there is our F-word distance. We now, as westernized society, have a thousand ways to fail, a thousand things to fear, which is our privilege. And it's rooted in this idea that we hate the idea of death and failure and a lack of success and security. We hate it so much, we would rather just denounce hell altogether. We come to fear earthly failure in the same way we fear our death then. In fact, failure becomes a kind of equivalent of death for us, which is why the, the young entrepreneur, the mother and sister at the beginning, found that they couldn't even mention the subject around him anymore. Our successes become our quest for immortality. And if we fail, it's like this double dose of death in our lives. We crave success, and the reason we crave success is that success appears to be the way we transcend our contingent mortality. <laughs> but in different ways, religious faith throughout the ages has been built on the insight of failure. The history of Islam begins in earnest when Muhammad the prophet is virtually thrown out of Mecca and makes his way to Medina to look for more fertile soil for his message. Failure. A key to understanding Judaism is to see the despair of the Jews when they were dragged into exile after the invasion of the southern kingdom by the Chaldeans. When they left Jerusalem, they, they thought they were leaving God behind. But when they got to Babylon, they discovered that God was there too. Failure. And failure is also at the heart of Christianity. There is no way to keep the F word at a distance from us. After all, the symbol of Christianity is a man dying alone in agony, rejected by the great many and abandoned by the close few. Christianity is, is founded above all on the forgiveness of sins, which is something you only get to discover the day you have the courage and the humility to say, I realize I'm wrong. I failed. I'm sorry. Christianity is like a 12-step program. You only get to be part of it if you're, if you're prepared to say the terrifying words, I've messed up. I've failed. The terrifying truth that lies in the space between our poverty and our privilege is that we all fail in the end. Life begins the moment that we fail and the moment you admit you've failed. Until then, you're living in this fantasy bubble. And if no one bursts it... <laughs> Well, you're, honestly, 
if no one bur- burst it, you, you just continue to live in this bubble, and, and, our, and the fear really lies in, in the fact of you don't know whether you can cope outside that bubble. Of all the moments of insight and self-knowledge in my own life, one of the most significant, I think, was at the age of seven, when I realized I was not going to be a female pop star one day. The rest of my friends took about five more years to decide that for themselves, to figure that out. I've always felt that that gave me a head start because I I spent five years more figuring out what I was going to be good at, figuring out what my success was going to be. I was quicker to realize I was a failure than they were. A friend of mine was was lamenting the demise of a nonprofit that that she had started, um, and, and she got into a conversation with an army commander at one point, and the commander asked her, it failed, didn't it? (laughs) Did it fail? She said, yes. Was it your fault? Was it someone else's fault? Did you learn anything from it? You still lose sleep over it? Do anything different next time? Seems like the commander's just barking questions at her, but as it kind of cascaded down over her, (laughs) it didn't feel like criticism, it felt like liberation because there was no shame or blame, just an exhilarating sense that life is seldom about much more than making honest mistakes. Finally, the commander said, my biggest failure was in Iraq. Got a lot wrong there. Felt a fool most of the time. Funny thing is, it's only since then that I've really enjoyed my job. Maybe it's because I'm no longer obsessed about meeting people's expectations. If you want to learn how to transcend failure, if you want to discover how to live with your own failures, if, if you want to live with the failures of others without resentment, you, you need to spend time. You must spend time with people that can't be fixed, people who don't have the privilege of ducking behind corners from failure. You have to spend time with people like that. Think again about Ruth's words to Naomi and Peter's words in John, that what makes them so powerful <laughs> is it's better to fail in a cause that will finally succeed than to succeed in a a cause that will finally fail. Kingstown, we've had some successes. There are people here today because of those successes, and we've had some failures. But when you have succeeded, has it been in a cause that will finally fail? And when you failed, and when you failed, has it been in a cause that will finally succeed? In the end, of the quality of our ministry here at Kingstown will not be measured by the quantity of our successes or the extent of our achievements or the number of people we reach (laughs) or our great messaging and lovely graphics. It will come down to this. Have you here identified and committed yourself to a cause in the light of which all successes and failures will be evaluated, a cause that will indeed finally succeed because of its truth because of its beauty, because of its goodness. If not, you'll have no real way of knowing whether anything that lies ahead of you is really success or failure. But if you have discovered and embraced such a cause, if you've been claimed in such a way that you leave this place today and every day knowing who you are and whose you are, then you won't be destroyed by failure or ruined by success because you'll know that any success of yours is just an embellishment to any already breathtaking picture. (laughs) And no failure of yours can ruin this story we are a part of. Amen.
To that extent, I'd like somebody to come share their story, their story of failure and success, their story of poverty and privilege. Naomi, would you like to come forward and share a little bit with us today? Are we good? Can you guys hear me? Okay. First of all, I apologize because I feel like this is like all about me day, so I apologize. Um, thank you guys for the cake. That was very kind of you. Um, so I was asked, fortunately, to get to talk about my work, which as someone in D.C. is much more comfortable for me than talking about myself. Mm -hmm. So thank you again for that. Um, I'm the executive director of the Coalition for Juvenile Justice, and we are a national nonprofit that works with states and allies across the country to try to improve the juvenile justice system. Um, we have 56 unique and distinct juvenile justice systems across the country. Um, pretty much all of them have the same challenges and struggles though. Um, one of our big projects that we work on is youth homelessness and juvenile justice. About one in 30 young people across the country are gonna experience homelessness at some point um, by themselves just you're 16 you're on the street by yourself and about 40 percent of those young people have been kicked out of their home because they're lgbt um, so mom and dad said get out um, they weren't tolerant and i feel very fortunate that we're a part of a church where i don't think that would happen mm -hmm. um, but that's one of the big things we work on when i was in dc with dcpds um, one of the things that i saw is that it's not even kids being told get out it's also kids who don't have the money to stay in their home. I worked with a young man who was 13 years old. He was getting ready to leave the facility in D.C. And he asked me one day, he's like, I need you to help me find a job. And it's really hard to help a 13-year-old find a job. Um, and I said, why do, you, why do you need a job? Because I'm, you know, I'm me, middle-class white kid. I don't know why you need a job at 13. And he says, if I leave and I don't have a job, I'm not going to have money. And if I don't have money, I'm going to end up back here because I'm going to have to take things so that I can get money, so that I can get food. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think one of the things that I struggle with in my work is not necessarily being able to understand all of the stories that we come into contact with, right? Um, we are very fortunate as part of our work to have a group of young people across the country that we work with who advise us, who are very honest to tell me, Naomi, that makes no sense to me. Why are you trying to do this? Um, and there are young kids who are 18 to 24 um, two of them are still currently incarcerated in Washington State, and they get to join us by phone. Um, and they have some of the most valuable, wonderful expertise um, that you will ever come into contact with. And I really appreciate the expertise of the young people that we work with um, because they're willing to call me on stuff, right? Um, there were three young men who, when I was working in the facility in D.C., um, I was there for six months, and I didn't see a white kid the whole time I was there. Um, and they asked, where are the white kids? And you have to be very frank and very honest and say, I don't know. We mess up too. I don't know why we're not here. Um, and I think one of the things I appreciate about our members is trying to do reform in an intentional way. Um, we've seen across the country that if you don't try to do it in an intentional way, the disparities that exist, um, the disparities that data shows are very real, and if you walk into a facility are very real, um, those can be exacerbated because of the bias that exists within all of us. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with this. This is just sort of what I do. Um, I appreciate the chance that I have to see people and see people get second chances. Um, the young men that we work with in Washington State who are in facilities um, are going to be there for quite a while. Um, but they're very talented, very wonderful people who've got to work on legislation in their home state. Um, they're literally changing the laws from behind the walls um, that they've been put behind. Um, and getting to see them sort of grow and flourish has been good for me and mm -hmm. I don't really have anything else to say. I have a question. Yeah. So how has that impacted your your finding a faith? I mean like 
why why be here? Is it all, is it all connected to? I yes. Don't know. Yeah. So we came here because uh, y'all had uh, where it was like a year and a half ago at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, and there was a vigil for the young people who were being killed and who are still being killed. Um, but it was important to me to have a faith community that like wasn't tone deaf to what's going on. You are a refuge. You have no borders. When I was a stranger knocking at your door, you took me in with no questions and no conditions. When I was a sinner running from your grace, you called me friend. You call me friend. There are no outsiders to your love. We are all welcome. There's grace enough. When I have wandered, Lord, your cross is the open door. There are no outsiders. I'm not an outsider to your love. There is peace at the table of the Lord.